0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to a very exciting episode. Join the podcast is frequent guest, Dr. Jesse Keenan. Jesse is a Favreau Associate Professor of Sustainable Real Estate at the School of Architecture at Tulane University. The last time Jesse was on, we took a deep dive on the federal agency adaptation action plans. Now he's back to discuss the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. This was huge news in the climate space, representing a massive leap forward in addressing the climate threat. But soon after it passed, a narrative came out in the media that it didn't address adaptation or resilience. And Jesse is coming on to set the record straight. There's actually a lot of adaptation policy and funding in the bill, and Jesse once again does the heavy lifting and highlights it for us. Also, in a bonus interview, Samantha Medlock, the senior counsel for the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis in the U.S. Congress, joins the podcast after the interview with Jesse and shares additional insight into the IRA and what's next for the committee and other areas of adaptation the U.S. Congress is looking to address. Two great interviews. I hope you enjoy. Upcoming episodes. I'm traveling to the Yucatan in Mexico with World Wildlife Fund to attend the second Mangrove Congress of America. We'll highlight how mangroves are critical nature-based approaches to climate adaptation. I'm also headed to Washington, D.C. in the National Adaptation Forum in Baltimore, Maryland, to get some interviews related to the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of 2021. Okay, Adapters, I want to tell you about an exciting partnership America Daps is involved in. In the coming months, I'll be working with Battelle on their Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference. This is the second Innovations in Climate Resilience, or ICR23, conference that Battelle has hosted. This year's theme is Bold Leaps in Action. The conference will take place on March 28th to March 30th, 2023, in Columbus, Ohio. ICR23 is gathering innovators across industry, academia, and government to share and inspire science and technology to move the climate adaptation space forward. I will be at the conference interviewing some of the leading voices in adaptation and resilience. All right, listeners, this applies to you. The call for abstracts is now open for field applications, case studies, technology solutions, and test beds. Submissions on research and modeling are also encouraged. The program themes are climate risk and national security, resilient built infrastructure, innovative climate solutions for ecosystem restoration and sustainability, tools and innovations to combat climate impacts on health, and energy technology decision-making and capacity expansion and what it means for a net zero economy. Join us at the conference where leaders and creators are sharing groundbreaking ideas and solutions to enhance climate resilience. Folks, there are not a lot of adaptation conferences out there. We're still an emerging sector, especially ones that bring together government, non-governmental organizations, and critically, the private sector. This one does. Submit your abstract today and help change the world. Visit battel.org forward slash adapt to learn more. That's battel.org forward slash adapt. There are also links in my show notes to this website. Take a look. Support for America Adapts comes from Battel, where science and technology are applied to help create a safer, healthier, more secure world. Mattel, it can be done. Let's join Dr. Jesse Keenan and discuss how the Inflation Reduction Act addresses climate adaptation. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Returning to the pod is frequent guest, Dr. Jesse Keenan. Jesse is a Favreau Associate Professor of Sustainable Real Estate at the School of Architecture at Tulane University. Welcome back, Jesse. Hey, it's great to be here. Always a pleasure to have you on, Jesse. So folks, we are going to discuss the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. This was a huge accomplishment. Many of us didn't think this was possible, but it happened. And now we're trying to figure out what it all means. Even less clear is what it means for those of us who work in the climate adaptation and resilience space. That's why I've invited Jesse on to break down how this legislation impacts adaptation. There's actually been some criticism out there that this legislation does little to actually nothing on the adaptation side. We'll have a longer conversation on that at the end of the episode, but I want to share that for context and why we're doing this episode in the first place. Jesse, can you briefly give us some general details about the IRA, which is what I'll be calling it going forward, and then we'll dig into some of the details.
1: we got a lot to cover here. You know, this was really sprung on all of us out of the blue, but it represents a big paradigm shift. But, you know, this is a $369 billion incentive, mostly through tax incentives in climate. and, and, And a heavy dose of that, of course, is in climate mitigation. Hopefully, we'll talk about the resilience and adaptation implications today. But this is a substantive, really, once in a generation, it feels like opportunity to catalyze in substantive capital investments. Of course, how are they getting there? It's healthcare, right? They're going to allow Medicare to negotiate lower prescription drugs. There's a corporate minimum tax. There's, you know, giving the IRS money to go out there and force all those deadbeats, folks who don't honestly pay their taxes. There's a 1% excess tax on stock buybacks. You know, companies are flush with money. They often don't have much to spend it on. But as a public policy, we want them to put that money to work. All in all, this is a really big investment. And I think from what it represents is a shift among other things, particularly in the consequence of tax. I think we're gonna talk a lot about tax and everything's gonna be about tax today. And I love teaching tax. I think tax is super interesting. Much of our policy is not just writing a piece of law to you know write people checks or making direct investments. A lot of it is indirect through public policy, is through tax policy. So we've moved. Big picture here, away from the idea of a carbon tax, which is a stick, in favor of tax incentives and a carrot. And what we see here is a lot of tax credits. You know, and a lot of people say, oh, well, this is the death nail of carbon taxes. We'll never have a carbon taxes are one shot. I don't you know necessarily think that these things are in direct conflict. This is an important no doubt carrot to incentivize investment, but and it will reach many parts of our economy, but I still think and I still want to open the door for a carbon tax. Now, why are we talking about carbon taxes? What are the implications of carbon taxes in the world of resilience and adaptation? Well, among other things, carbon taxes are a means to raise revenue, particularly from polluting industries, and then spend that money both for climate mitigation and adaptation. And long longstanding dividend plans for carbon taxes have included expending that money for adaptation. And in fact, essentially what Uh, California does with their cap and trade system, a lot of that money does go to adaptation. But increasingly, a lot of that money also goes to adaptation. So it's a big shift. And I don't want to foreclose carbon taxes, because I think for carbon taxes can still reach many parts of the economy that the IRA does not. But we've moved to a fundamentally different regime on how we stimulate investment.
0: Okay, so let's discuss those tax credits. Can you explain that what's going on with the direct pay and then the more conventional transfer market? Yeah, explain all that, please. Oh man, so this
1: is really interesting. So a lot of these credits are going for when companies make investments and direct investments in capital, right? Machinery, factories, widgets, right? It's things that are part of the supply chain, but also themselves for production purposes, are producing renewable energy. And there's all kinds of requirements in this act that are unique about minimum prevailing wages, right? You got to pay people fair wages when you invest in these projects, particularly construction projects. There's requirements for apprenticeships so that you begin to mobilize our labor economy. I mean, one of the biggest shortcomings I think we've seen with Bipartisan Infrastructure Act is a real under recognition, I think, more broadly of the challenges in terms of the labor economy and just getting people to work in the labor economy. We have massive construction employment constraint or employment in construction constraints right now. That's not helping inflation in the housing market. Imagine what that's like in the in the broader infrastructure market. It's quite severe. So, long story short, prevailing wage, apprenticeship requirements, as long as you sit comply with that, you can mostly get you know, the opportunity for full tax credits. The big innovation here, though, is that historically, the way ta- a lot of tax credits, not all tax credits, but a lot of tax credits worked, is that an entity that was producing, let's say, the Renewable Energy Project, they would transfer those tax credits to equity investors. These are people from the outside, they're not active investors, they're passive investors in a project. And they sell those tax credits because those entities have taxable income and taxable liabilities. A project that's right off the ground, you know, development project or infrastructure project, may not have a lot of taxable income, particularly for a while. So those tax credits aren't necessarily worth a lot to them. So large entities or entities with large taxable incomes, they value these tax credits and they purchase them. Now, they're not purchasing them dollar for dollar because there's transactional costs among other things. There's a market for it. So for instance, the low income housing tax credits, I'm not quite sure where the market is these days, but people used to pay 88 to 90 cents on the dollar. And for a while when they brought the tax, effective tax regulations brought the effective tax rate down, it went even lower than that. People were paying 75 cents on the dollar for tax credit. There was a problem in the sense that when you have these transfer and sale model tax credits, you weren't fully getting the benefit of that equity investment and dollar for dollar from the federal government, that is, in the hands of the renewable energy or whatever kind of industry we wanted to support. Right off the bat, it's more efficient, arguably, to have what we call a kind of direct pay model. So instead of having this transfer of the tax credits where I'm developing a wind project and I get all these tax credits and then I sell them to equity investors, but they're not giving me dollar for dollar. Instead, I just get a check from the federal government for whatever amount that tax credit uh, represents. And it offsets, some of it's gonna offset my income, what little income I may have, which of course may grow over time. And research is pretty clear That with direct pay versus this transfer, the more conventional transfer market, you're basically double the impact of your tax dollar. And so right off the bat, that's really important. There's another advantage here, which is that for mature technologies like solar and wind, the tax equity market tends to prefer more conventional. Now, it's strange saying that wind and solar are conventional. But the tax market and the equity investors like safe bets, right? Because if the project is mismanaged or doesn't proceed as planned, you can lose those tax credits. So they tend to navigate towards more conventional known entities like wind and solar, which leaves out carbon capture and hydrogen and the advancements we've had in nuclear and all kinds of things. Bipartisan Policy Center has done some interesting work on this. So the idea here is that one the dollar for dollar you're getting a better deal for the federal government by this direct pay versus conventional and two it the the market for tax equity investors and and really the developers ultimately of these projects it's more diversity and it's more diversity in a range of technologies and so You know, when you add all of this up, and I just want to go back and say that, you know, this is a momentous shift in policy and shift in tax policy to go to this direct pay model. But when you go back and you add up all of these investments, the question is, like, what are we really getting? For this, right, and you know, people have done some initial estimates. The Rhodium Group estimated this could get us upwards of forty percent reduction from our two thousand five levels in uh, carbon equivalency emissions. Our Paris Agreement that we bound ourselves to. By 2030, was 50 to 52%, something in that range. So for this amount of money, in theory, we could get close to reaching our Paris goals. But there, when you consider the multiplier effects and what this means as a catalytic function for our economy, and what we're, we're going to talk about today, the resilience and adaptation implications, there's a lot here and there's a lot of potential. And I think what we're looking at from a tax policy point of view is a more streamlined process to a greater number of potential participants
0: and stakeholders. Okay, so help me out here. How do you even determine the tax credit in all this?
1: So tax credits are based on usually quantifications of for instance, in renewable energy production context, uh, how many gigawatts you're producing, for instance. There's different quantifications. And when you hit this level of production relative to your carbon footprint, it allows you to then qualify for that tax credit. And I think that's really, you know, that's the way we do have done things for quite some time. A lot of what we're talking about is actually renewal of existing programs. There's new programs, but there's a lot of existing work here. I think, in the context of adaptation, it's really interesting because we have largely qualified the benefits of adaptation. And I think we're at a stage now where, if we were to move into a next phase of policy where we were going to have adaptation-driven tax credits, we would need to have more formal quantifications. With renewable energy, it's super simple. It's kilowatts per hour. It's gigawatts. It's like it's a known measure. I think adaptation. We could certainly have estimated net present value for losses. Like we could estimate our losses. We could think about the not only losses but economic output that we are in wealth effects and all kinds of other impacts that adaptation can support. So I think as we move into this next phase of thinking about adaptation, we need better quantifications because I think it'll allow us to tie into tax policy later on. And you know, the big elephant in the room here, and we've said this probably over and over again, is this is the opportunity and this is the time to really get into cost-benefit analysis. Certainly, Congress could take some steps, but this is largely within the executive branch and the domain of the executive branch to be able to modernize cost-benefit analysis, which is figuring out if we're going to make an investment in any kind of intervention or a public asset, in this case, adaptation asset, you know, do the benefits outweigh the costs? And there's all kinds of challenges there in terms of the discount rates and things like that. But at the end of the day, we need a more sophisticated measure to do two things. One weight the benefits for what we would call an equity multiple or an equity measure so that we can wait and reweight the benefits to support Lower income or impoverished or historically marginalized neighborhoods. There's a real need to kind of reweight these things, and because as a the consequence, there's a tendency to invest in projects that just support rich neighborhoods, like wealth protects wealth, right? So that's one public policy challenge. The other public policy challenge is, is to think about the conditional nature. Often in terms of probability and expected value of what these potential avoided losses or gains would be, so I think there's an underlying methodological advancement that we need. And frankly, a lot of this work's been out has been done and is out there in cost benefit analysis. And in fact, the U.S. GCRP Global Change Research Program had a draft of a CBA kind of like a step forward at some point. And I'm not sure whatever happened to that. I know it was quite controversial on many fronts, but it's an opportunity. And we need to take that step forward so that in the future, we have these quantifications that are going to allow us to plug into tax policy.
0: Okay, let's keep digging into this bill. Let's talk about the clean energy tax credits. How are they relevant in all this?
1: Ooh, so this, there's so much here. We have clean hydrogen tax credit, which sort of staggers the tax credit based on the CO2 over hydrogen sort of intensity and output. We have nuclear production. We have extension of renewable electricity production tax credits. But there's one tax credit here called the advanced manufacturing tax credit that I think is really relevant to adaptation. Here, eligible components for solar, wind turbines, batteries, critical minerals even, have the opportunity for this tax credit. And this really, I think, connects to adaptation. One, things like batteries and critical minerals and the the components that go into these advanced manufacturing components and elements really support adaptation. I mean, it's not difficult to think about how and why batteries are extremely valuable, particularly from a community or engineering resilience point of view. There's also an example here where microgrids and the elements that go into microgrids have both efficiency and climate mitigation implications, but microgrids also have enormous resilience implications in terms of performance metrics. This advanced manufacturing tax credit, I think, opens the door for a number of different technologies that have both climate mitigation and climate adaptation values.
0: Well, I don't talk much about energy, but just the to, the notions of the, having access to energy is going to be important for adaptation in the years ahead versus the production side, which is carbon mitigation and all that. And definitely a space here just thinking about energy. All right, let's move on to the clean fuels tax credit.
1: Yeah, so we have a new tax credit, which is the clean fuel production tax credit, and this is a maximum credit of a dollar per gallon or dollar seventy-five per gallon for aviation fuel, and it's really interesting because it's multiplied by an emissions factor, and that emissions factor is calculated by the amount of essentially BTU, British thermal units, the amount of energy or heat per unit, in this case, 50 kilograms of CO2. So the the value of the fuel is adjudicated by essentially its carbon footprint relative to its total energy output. And there's a tax credit to incentivize these types of clean fuels. And of course, obviously, sustainable aviation clean fuels. There's an extension of biofuel and renewable diesel tax credit. And I think one implication here for adaptation is that we have a lot of concentration in high-risk zones for fuel production and refining. And I think going forward, there's a question about how we can shape this program to decentralize production and de-risk some of our supply chain when it comes to fuels. And I don't know if there's an opportunity here for future potential incentives for instance, modified accelerated depreciation, which is a way that we allow capital assets to be depreciated faster on the books, which allows more effective income in a way for taxable entities. I'm not sure quite how we get there. I think that's one way to do it. But as we go forward, And then we begin to think about fuel production. I think we need a spatial and geographic sensitivity to that. And as we expand and decentralize our refining and our fuel production and supplies in the United States, we need to begin to think about physical risk and and ways that we can further de-risk the supply chain. So I think it's a really interesting opportunity. And I think there's some adjacent tax policies here that can help us get there.
0: Okay, this bill, there's a lot of carrots in it. I guess that's a really good thing. So let's talk about the clean vehicle refueling tax credit.
1: Sure. So clean vehicle tax credits, you know, we've understood this for some time. I think what's really interesting about this is the alternative fuel refueling property tax credit. I'm going to say it one more time because it's a mouthful. Alternative fuel refueling property tax credit. And here you get a 30% of the cost of your alternative fuel refueling property up to $100,000. And there's a bunch of adaptation implications here. One, we need more charging infrastructure, particularly charging infrastructure to support evacuations. You would be surprised the arguments that people make for and against electric vehicles. I have indeed heard arguments that right here in New Orleans, Louisiana, is that we're worried that if we go to evacuate a hurricane, we won't be able to recharge anywhere because the infrastructure will be overloaded. So we really need a gas car because gas will get us a lot farther and get us back onto the mainland. That sounds kind of strange, maybe something in New Orleans, but it's really not. We don't have enough charging infrastructure to support evacuations that we need, particularly for hurricanes. There's also an implication for having backup supplies of biofuels and other alternatives of fuels in emergencies. Fuel supply in a post-disaster context is always a really critical element of any disaster plan and post-disaster execution. And really thinking through how we invest, particularly in alternative refueling properties, I think can actually help us, again, decentralize our fuel resources in a post-disaster context. I think that's a really good thing, particularly in a a sort of community resilience context. Post-disaster refueling is really tricky in a way, I think there's some new technologies out there and you've probably seen I think it's a Ford ad where the power goes out at the house at someone's house and they plug in their house into their Ford You know, electric one F one fifty or something. I mean, I don't know how realistic that is. Maybe you could run the lights, assuming you have dual parallel switching (laughs) already set up. You know, in in your house, it's very unlikely. But I do think we're on the verge of this interface between vehicles and housing and battery storage, and the idea that we're going to have some synchronicity where vehicles themselves are portable batteries that could support some basic functions in a post-disaster context. I mean, that commercial lays it out. I don't think the technology is quite there, but I think we're not far away. So I think when you think about refueling and you think about the energy going in one direction, I think it can also go back in another direction. And I think that would largely qualify under this alternative fuel refueling property tax credit. The big problem here, though, with all of this is that there's a need for federal preemption over states on charging infrastructure. I think it was North Carolina who might have had a bill. States are kind of beginning to stick their nose and trying to inhibit more charging infrastructure. That's a big problem. I mean, I think from a litigation point of view, there's some implicit preemption here. But I think the federal government needs to really ultimately be using the commerce clause, stand in and say, you know what, the federal government has preemption over infrastructure. States are really going to be prohibited outside of the normal regulatory regime to the public service commissions. They're going to be prohibited from interfering with the development of charging infrastructure. But long story short, I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities here. And I think there's some technologies that are going to allow a two-way flow of energy and power and storage that could really be quite critical, particularly in a post-disaster context.
0: Okay, this next section looks really interesting to me is the carbon management tax credit.
1: So, here we're talking about carbon capture and sequestration and materials and things like that. There's a $50 to $180 per ton tax credit, depending on the method that you're using. Most of the approach here is for, particularly for carbon captures on geological formations and using reservoirs and things like that. But, you know, one of the things that I think stood out to me here is that we're going to need a lot of concrete and adaptation going forward. I mean, we're going to have to build new cities, new urban areas. We're going to have to move things. We're going to have to build levees. I mean, we're just a lot of concrete is in our future. You know, somewhere between eight and nine percent of global emissions. All global emissions are coming from the production of concrete. So it's an enormous. You know, carbon equivalent of footprint here. And there are new methods for carbon mineralization, methods and CO2 capture are very often injected into concrete that change the calculus. There's other things they're doing, like capturing exhaust and feeding it back into the kiln and stuff. But you know, there are methods here for carbon capture in concrete that are really gonna, I think, reduce our carbon footprint in the concrete industry. And I think whatever that does, and and to the extent that 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 is productive and positive. It's really going to help adaptation. Now, it could hurt adaptation because it could impose some costs that make it more expensive. But I think ultimately, you know, there's natural re- resource, mineral constraints, and all kinds of other things limiting that production. But at the end of the day, I think it's a good thing. And really, the government here is may is not just tax credits; they're making investments and commitments in low carbon materials and concrete for the production, for instance, of not only federal procurement, but for the production of federal highways. In fact, I think it's about almost $6 billion for advanced industrial facilities, including iron, steel, concrete, glass, pulp, paper, ceramics, chemical production, all of these things. And think about how we can reduce that carbon footprint. Again, when we advance carbon mitigation in these sectors, it's going to have a reciprocal impact in theory, of bringing down energy costs, bringing down unit costs, and that's going to make the efficiency of adaptation investments or the feasibility, I think in some cases, it's beneficial to our long-term adaptation. There's also investments here because we're talking about carbon management of investments in forestry management, wood innovation, and of course, there's all kinds of associated uh, material innovations going into engineering resilience these days associated with forestry management. There is money set aside for the wildfire risk reduction and biomass removal in the Lewis as part of this broader forest management initiative in the bill or in the Act. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, that is advancing some measure of risk reduction, exposure reduction, and ultimately promoting community uh, resilience. So that's largely a good thing. But we're looking at financial and technical assistance of land management, national forests, farm, carbon sinks and farms, ecological conservation. You know, whenever we think about ecological conservation, forestry management, it has so many collateral effects in risk reduction, particularly in context of stormwater and water quality that impact and plague so many communities and and jurisdictions around the country. So there's a lot of convergence here. And when we take care of our ecosystems, we take care of our forests. It often adds a lot of collateral benefit to reducing demand and reducing pollution and reducing the wear and tear on our infrastructure.
0: I want to follow up on that, it's just the investments in forest management. That, that seems like that overlaps with so much of what a lot of people doing in the adaptation space and just really didn't get much attention at all. I mean, just people just didn't quite understand that that was there, Right.
1: Yeah, I think people think of it as just thinning out the the trees, pulling out dead trees. It's a real opportunity for forestry stewardship. And this isn't just about Managing wildfires. This is about managing the health of the forest themselves and being more engaged in, in, in ecological management in all the right ways, I think. Another thing related to land management here, and this is where, you know, the Washington Post today had an article that says that the federal government didn't invest anything in, in resilience or adaptation in this bill or in this act. And it, it's just really shoddy and really poor reporting. I mean, it's almost like they didn't even do maybe a keyword search in the act. <laughs> I mean, or like, is there an editor? I mean, sometimes you just feel like it's clickbait. And the terrible thing here is, I'd like to say, is that Washington Post has amazing climate coverage. I mean, yes. there's there's a number of folks there covering climate. I mean, they have like a half a dozen people that are regularly putting out really groundbreaking work. So I'm not sure how this clickbait fell in staying the reputation of the IRA, but I mean, and it's sad in a way that this is where we are, and I hope there's I hope this person recognizes their error. but specifically to resilience, there's two point six billion dollars in coastal community resilience for coastal and marine dependent communities. That's not an insignificant amount of money. I mean, what and and there's so many different things. It's not just about shoring up port infrastructure. I mean, First, it's one of the things we know about coastal communities and fishing communities, for instance, uh, uh, marine dependent communities, is that the ranges of fish are changing. Fish in the northern hemisphere are moving further and further north at deeper waters. So they're not catching the same fish. The infrastructure for one fishery is not the same for another. And we're in this moment of transition and transformation in many of our coastal communities that are about fisheries. They're also about sea level rise and all those biophysical things that we think about. But there's a complex industrial ecology at work that also is in the state of um, adaptation. And, you know, this is $2.6 billion to address that. So I'm not sure where the Washington Post fell short here in their quality assurance, but right off the bat, we can say that that isn't, you know, there's many adaptation relevant uh, expenditures and investments. This is a very explicit one.
0: All right. Well, we're using this episode just to <laughs> tell that story. All right, let's move on to residential energy. What's going on there?
1: Yeah. So we're extending a tax credit here for residential solar, wind, geothermal, biomass. And now they've extended this to battery storage technology. And again, the implications for battery storage technologies are, are quite profound. We'll come back to that in a second. This is a 30% tax credit. Now there are limits There's a, and that's When I say tax credit 30%, what I mean is that you spend $100, you get 30% of that, $30 for qualifiable expense. But there are limits here. There's a $1,200 annual limit, $600 for windows, $500 for doors. There's a $2,000 annual limit for heat pumps and biomass stoves. There is a credit, $150 to do an energy audit and a $600 credit just to do an electrical panel upgrade. So there's some limits here and they, they sort of parcel it out, but this is real money. They did remove from the tax credit roofing and air circulating fans. i do not not really sure why. I know that the there's been a lot of, let's say, bad faith in the roofing industry, people making claims. It's like, constantly a thorn in the side of the insurance industry with roofing. So I'm not sure if maybe they thought that this would not be a good use of funds because the roofing industry is so deeply corruptible already in the United States. But why is this related to energy? Why is this energy efficiency related to adaptation? Well, there's a really big connection here. Because when we have energy efficiency, it reduces our base loads right and when we reduce our base loads it gives us more flexibility in accommodating extreme events it also makes battery storage fundamentally more effective because we don't have to we won't have such a demand on the batteries themselves with a lower base load but there's also a really practical consideration in engineering resilience terms which is what we call passive survivability so when a building loses water and energy can it still maintain an ambient temperature from which survivable for some amount of time. This year, California passed a law and a new building code that required passive survivability and new construction. This is a really big deal. It has the collateral effect of essentially adding more insulation and frankly, more embodied carbon. But the, the flip side is you have lower operational carbon. So that's, that feels good. But the implications are, you know, a scenario where, you know, the power goes out at a old folks home. And all of a sudden, people get roasted alive in this retirement home because they couldn't get the generators up running or the air conditioning or the cooling support up fast enough. In this context of passive survivability, buildings are going to have to maintain a no power, again, ambient temperature and probably some implications associated with humidity to be able to be survivable for some amount of time. So, this is really key. And I think that these investments that we make in energy efficiency relate to passive survivability. And in the context of extreme heat waves, this can very often be life or death for a lot of people, who, by the way, wouldn't be able to otherwise afford something like a generator in their backyard.
0: So you've really connected the dots on how this is relevant to adaptation. And I think this next section this is even, this is more obvious to me. And so we're going to be talking about the community investment and energy justice section of the bill.
1: Yeah. So and by the way, before we can get to energy justice, there is a bunch of money going out there to, um, and basically incentivize states to have the most updated energy codes and really push the adoption of zero energy provisions in building codes. And there are all kinds of risk mitigation and engineering resilience Uh, bells and whistles that are caught up in building codes. So another collateral benefit is that when we update our building codes and international energy conservation code and all this jazz, and we basically sort of bribe states to do what they should have done anyway, it's going to be good for consumers, lower energy bills. But again, it's also going to be a pathway for risk reduction going into building codes. That is, we're going to design buildings to a higher standard of performance in the face of extreme events. All right. Let's get to, as you highlighted, community investment in energy justice and climate justice. So the, there is a, um, investments in the environmental and climate justice grants and technical assistance. They allow tribes, local governments, and even university partners to be eligible. And here, there's a hu- in, in the context of adaptation, there's a huge amount of discretion for community resilience. And I think there's really, when you're thinking about tribes, local governments, and university partners benefiting the grants and technical assistance, I think One of the things that's very clear to me in the way they structured this is an opportunity for measuring and auditing impacts of of adaptation and resilience projects themselves. And in that way, we can have better quality assurance that we're uh, really uh, reaching the people we've sought to reach. You know, there's this EJ40, this environmental justice 40 policy that, you know, 40% of what, you know, certain expenditures are going to reach, you know, historically marginalized communities. Well, I think these justice grants and the way they've configured it, I think allows these multiple stakeholders to work together and basically begin the auditing the measuring and setting up the framework so that we can make sure that future adaptation resilience projects are reaching the the beneficiaries we sort of thought they would or had, had otherwise attended. So it's about accountability. Ultimately, there is an FHA neighborhood access grants for mitigation and adaptation. And that's for, you know, you can think about stormwater runoff, urban heat island effects for urban tree canopies are explicitly highlighted in there. So, you know, when we're adding a tree canopy in a neighborhood, obviously there's biomass and there's carbon capture and that feels good, but it's also reducing Temperatures, right? We're addressing urban heat islands. So that is explicitly included in here. There's a 40% tax credit for wind and solar in low income communities. And obviously, that's going to be useful in a uh, post disaster context when you can ha- or at least run some critical functions through wind and solar, as has happened actually in a number of cases, uh, even in the past decade. There's also USDA grant assistance here, not to exceed 25% of total cost, which I think is a kind of a strange limit, but that's what it is. And here, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is giving money to rural electric cooperatives. And by the way, this is a big problem in adaptation resilience, particularly in the context of federal projects and policy, which is that many rural communities, counties, public utilities, they just don't have the sophistication. Uh, and I wouldn't say sophistication. They don't have the resources to necessarily manage Very complex resilience and adaptation projects. They're just kind of barely getting by with the little resources that they do have. And so this grant, this USDA grant goes to, quote, improve resiliency, reliability and affordability of electrical systems and rural electrical systems, end quote. And I think that's really important. Again, all the Washington Post had to do was maybe just use a word search to find this very important and potentially effective grant program that reaches a lot of rural communities and rural electric cooperatives.
0: Okay, just in this next section, I've actually been seeing a bit of coverage that this could really gum up the intentions of this bill, and that's regarding permitting, that this can get really difficult, there could be a lot of legal challenges. What's going on in the bill regarding that?
1: You know, there's been this adage that's gone around in recent years that environmental law was created to protect the environment from people. And now we have to really shift our mindset to think about how we protect people from the environment. And I don't think that that's necessarily always the case, but it it highlights something really, which is a big shift in thinking environmental law, which is that we need to rethink those laws and regulations that are perhaps least effective and open the door for unnecessary delays in politicizing projects. Now, these standing provisions and these things like the National Environmental Policy Act have been used and misused by both sides. And that is people kind of pro-growth, anti-growth, pro-oil, anti-oil, you know, whatever context you want to set up. But I think in the context of NEPA and other environmental regulations, I think we're at this moment where we really need to think about What is our goal here? What are the environmental values that we seek to uh, uh, protect and address? And what is the underlying cost for those goals? And I'm not here to say that we need to gut environmental regulation in the interest of building transmission lines for wind and solar. But at the same time, I think we really need to rethink the procedural aspects of much of this work. In the IRA, there's money that goes for Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council, Environmental Review Improvement Fund. There's money that goes to the EPA and NOAA for more efficient and timely reviews. And there's this kind of money and resources that are going to these agencies that I think are going to help stimulate some productive thought about how they can streamline, maybe not the legal aspects of permitting and environmental reviews but maybe the procedural or regulatory dimensions right The very practical like paperwork and and also making sure that they have adequate resources for people to do the reviews themselves i mean You know, it can take years and many years to do adequate reviews, environmental reviews, and impact reviews. And if you don't have enough people working in government to do those reviews at all, you know, state, local, federal, it really slows things down. So I think we can modernize the system without necessarily compromising the integrity of the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, NEPA, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in many ways there was a bit of a missed opportunity here to kind of stimulate NEPA reform in general, again, National Environmental Policy Act. Which basically says that you have to consider environmental impacts, not necessarily act upon them, and it has very broad standing or legal standing implications that allow third parties or the general public to sort of intervene, and that has been led to lots of delays. So NEPA has been on the cutting block for conservatives and Republicans for a long time because they want to build, you know, they want to build pipelines and things like that. But I think in the context of building green infrastructure, and climate adaptation. All of these investments in people, resources, and fundamentally ideas of streamlining, I think will be a benefit ultimately to adaptation projects.
0: All right. So this final section of the bill that we're going to be talking about, I'm sure is of interest to a lot of groups, and that's the various loan programs in it.
1: So for many years, I've propagated the idea originally commissioned in New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, of resilience investment funds. Uh, we set up something similar in California. We've developed a comparable model for a resilience investment fund in Massachusetts. You know, we've had very successful revolving loan funds around the country, particularly with clean water, that have allowed local governments to tap into money that would be, let's say, cheaper than the open market or borrowing money on the open market, even even a bond market. And so it's part of their capital stack. It's one component of their financing for making investments, in this case, in clean drinking water. There have been similar efforts in different other infrastructure sectors and transportation, for instance, where you can get below basically money that's indexed over a treasury rate. That's very low cost of funds or what we call weighted average cost of capital is quite low or brings down your weighted average cost of capital. So long story short, makes the money cheaper, makes the project cheaper. So there's $40 billion that goes into direct loan authority. Um, there's $3.6 billion in credit subsidies. I actually think that's a very important part of it because... It's not about just lending out the money. It's also having targeted subsidies very often in different types of swaps or insurance products or any kind of uh, guarantees that bring down the interest cost. Uh, So there are many local governments or infrastructure providers are going to have to have some private sector financing. And when you have credit subsidies, it functionally buys down their interest rate. It's not always the way it works, but it's sort of how it works. So credit subsidies and putting some money in credit subsidies, I think, will help grow various instruments and various models there. Very importantly, there's $11.9 billion that's going into seed funding for state, local, and tribal green banks. And this is what people have been calling for for a number of time. And a green bank is essentially a bank that is revolving funds, of course, at more or less that operates like any other bank, uh, very often at a state level that's making investments primarily in infrastructure, primarily revenue producing infrastructure to pay back. The, the loans, and they're doing so at again below market interest cost. And green banks, in theory, I think can begin to support more rural and mid sized jurisdictions and that are not really being adequately served by existing programs like BRIC or. Hazard mitigation, they just don't have the size or the scale yet to get into availing themselves of, of, of federal subsidies. And what they're more comfortable with and what they know is that they've got just a regular old infrastructure project and they can bring in dimensions of sustainability and carbon reduction as well as adaptation that would otherwise that would qualify them to get this essentially cheaper money. And at a state level, green banks I think can be important because they, they would ostensibly be integrated with state policies and practices, which I think makes the regulatory dimensions of project development and approval a little bit more streamlined. And and of course the flip side of that is that you know there's always going to be state politics and particularly red state politics that could easily interfere with this green agenda uh, in these green banks. But, But frankly, you know, what green banks we've seen have been successful and even states like Florida that are climate skeptical historically rarely turn away free money. And it doesn't say this is free money, but it's certainly a a huge opportunity. So I think what we see with these loan authorities, the credit subsidies, the seed funding for the green banks is going to be able to mobilize lending facilities and lending programs that are going to be able to address not just mitigation, but ultimately adaptation. So there's a huge adaptation implications for this, because once you get that underwriting down, once you sort of grease the wheels of progress here, I think we will have more robust access to capital. And you have to remember, too, that like there's no such thing as like an adaptation or a resilience project. Those are very rare. What we're talking about are building roads, building water systems, cleaning water, stormwater overflow. I mean, we're talking about basic infrastructure, and it will have additional costs for having carbon neutral materials or low carbon materials it can have additional costs for designed adaptive capacity to handle extreme events or engineering resilience performance measures all of those things just add additional costs And so these banks are not necessarily intended to fund these projects outright. They're intended to essentially finance the additional costs to offload the burden of the or the cost burden associated with the engineering resilience and design adaptive capacity and carbon mitigation. So I I think this is really a kind of a good place to end because it can leave us with some measure of optimism that we're really sort of we've cranked up the car and now we're starting to rev up the gas.
0: Great. You, you once again you've done us a great service here, Jesse. I we're going to wrap this up with a few more questions that i have just more broadly i guess how this is relevant but i do want to note and i should have mentioned at the beginning on this very day that we're recording this you know analysis of the inflation reduction act the white house is having their ira celebration day i don't know if you you knew that i'm sure you did Mm jesse they're all there on the white house grounds it would have been nice to go there with my microphone and maybe interview some folks but i feel like we're doing a service here on the same day that they're celebrating it we're recording this podcast, so that that's really cool. Did not plan that; that just happened to work out that way. All right, Jesse, you took the Washington Post to task, and I want to talk about that briefly. It's just more, I, I've seen quite a bit of this coverage that the, the IRA does not address climate change, adaptation, and resilience. Why do you think that message is really getting out there?
1: Yeah. I think it's because people um, don't know what they're talking about. And they haven't fundamentally taken the time to understand the very complex interrelationships between climate mitigation and climate adaptation. And there's all kinds of conflicts, but there's all kinds of synergies. And I, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to read through the provisions of these programs and to see the opportunities for risk reduction, see the opportunities to advance Engineering and community resilience, as well as ecological resilience, and to see quite explicitly the idea that we can accomplish a certain synergistic result by reducing emissions and reducing our exposure and sensitivity to climate impacts. So, frankly, I think it's people need clickbait, they need something to write about. It doesn't have large programmatic gestures. It doesn't have an explicit tax credit for climate adaptation, but it's there in very substantive ways. I think the next frontier for investment in climate adaptation is ultimately investing in personnel and the people within the federal government to develop our own adaptive capacity at the federal level to make sure that the federal government itself is adapting to climate adaptation. And I think when we make those really basic investments, and right now, we're, it's really operating on a shoestring adaptation in the federal government. We're seeing, I think, movement, we're seeing progress, we're seeing good things happen, but it's grossly underinvested in. And I think one of the reasons we want to invest in the federal government and in the intelligence, the personnel, the programmatic opportunities is that when the federal government begins to learn and mature in this context it's going to trickle down to the states and local governments, and ultimately to communities. In fact, this is kind of the story of the diffusion of innovation and sustainability. When the federal government and the Congress passed a number of laws and various administrations had advanced sustainability, it had huge impact on collateral jurisdictions and communities. And so the next frontier is not necessarily just pumping money out. It's actually investing in people and investing in the institutions. And in the IRA, we saw an investment in institutions specifically to environmental Review. That actually will really, I think, benefit adaptation in a lot of really substantive ways. But I think we need a more complex and more complete and maybe even more comprehensive map of investments associated with building an adaptive capacity of the U.S. government and within every agency.
0: Well, just from a political standpoint, just even having the personnel out there working on these things, it's a bit harder to kind of get rid of people that are actually working on these topics versus zeroing out a program. So I just, we got to think long-term too, because we're going to have different administrations yeah. being less friendly. All right. So Jesse, in, in regards to this, uh, the notion of that it does it address resilience, the Infrastructure Act passed last year. I'm curious, have you had a chance to really think, okay, this IRA bill, the infrastructure bill, are the people behind these bills, are they kind of like playing seven-dimensional chess? Is there a cohesiveness to their approach around climate adaptation or did they just kind of get in what they could? I mean, I mean, is there like a big picture here that we're not really even thinking about?
1: I think to their credit, they're they're using a lot of and adapting, and I'm gonna use this adapting in a slightly different context here. They're they're using a lot of tools that are known tools of environmental policy, tax policy, and the like. And they're working within known institutions and conventions. And I think that's important because there's no there's no real need to rewrite the playbook. We have the playbook. We have the tools. We basically know what we need to do. And we're working within these known conventions like tax equity financing and tax credit policy to advance these policy considerations. So, you know, I don't think there is a concerted Strategy at work here. I think it has been more circumstantial to particular projects, to particular influence groups, and has not necessarily, does not necessarily represent a cohesive agenda in a way. But that's politics. I mean, there's no, that's always what you're going to get, right? It, I think it's naive to think in many ways that a presidential administration could come in, have this huge overarching plan execute that in Congress, and then administer it within a vast bureaucracy. There's trade-offs, there's negotiations, there's compromise. And I think what we see here is, and I want to be very optimistic in this regard, I think what we see here is compromise. And I think what we see here are the utilization of tools that we fundamentally know how to use. And I think there's some real advantage to that than trying to fundamentally redraw the map in ways that people may not be able to navigate.
0: Okay. I'd be curious your opinion about this. I look at what's happened with the infrastructure bill and now the IRA is like, does this create even more of a demand for, for a national adaptation plan? And I think of how you just described what's in this bill. A lot of people just don't realize it's in there. There's going to need to be a lot of handholding. And to me, a national adaptation strategy plan could provide some sideboards to getting that out there and working with states, working with local governments. Do you think, this demonstrate that there's like even more of a need for a national plan?
1: Yeah, I think so. I I think that a national adaptation plan from a merely a, public communications point of view would be quite valuable because you can see the underlying complexity of, from which climate impacts shape nearly everything in our economy. I mean, we, we had this conversation when we went through all the adept, agency adaptation plans. I mean, everything from paying your taxes to getting your social security check, you know, everything from food prices to gas prices, all of this is caught up within the realm of um, very complicated systems of global change. And when you have a national adaptation plan and an underlying strategy, it opens the door for a platform to communicate these complexities, but also a bilateral and multilateral channel for people to engage. And I say people, but I mean local governments, communities, um, state governments, to engage the federal government in making investments that advance both the the common good and the public and the private sectors. So there's a real utility and value to this, independent of its executory value. And that's just communications, right? And so I think in many ways, having that strategy is something that will be able to better inform the public and policymakers themselves.
0: All right. Let's end this on a really positive note. So, again, thanks for coming on and, and making these connections and explaining the adaptation relevance of the IRA. Just any s- final thoughts? This was, like you said, this is a once in a generation thing. This is something to celebrate, right?
1: Yeah. I'm. I mean, this. We should all feel like pretty good about this. But you know, I was, I was trying to think of an analogy for this a while ago, and it. It's kind of like, you're fifty years old. <laughs> you've gone to the doctor and you have heart disease and then you go and you buy a gym pass at a fancy gym and you're like feeling pretty good, you know, like, but at the end of the day, you still have to go to the gym and work out. (laughs) Right. And so what we have here is a condition where we all have like pretty serious heart disease, i.e. climate impacts accelerating rapidly. We're not getting any younger and we all have to go to the gym to work out. So we've got the institutions, the laws and the incentives, but there's a lot of work ahead of us here. This is just the beginning. It's not even close to being the end of what we can regard in terms of climate action and even legislative climate action. So things are quite dire extremely dire. This is a well-intended, but ultimately compromised investment. And there's good things and there's bad things in here and people can talk about those. I think there's a lot of good things in here for resilience and adaptation. There's a lot of things in here we should be proud of, but it doesn't matter. What matters is we have a lot of hard work just to execute on these things. So there's a lot that stands in front of us. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, very simply, having adaptation-specific tax credits and developing the quantifications and the metrics necessary to ensure that we are getting something of public benefit for our dollars and our tax dollars is in- Important. Those are methodological contributions that have very immediate implications for for policy that could very well happen in the next couple of years. So you know the work is ahead of us, and that means being active as voters, being active in our democratic processes. Unfortunately, that's the only way that we can make progress is together as a collective group of people.
0: And this is one voice, but we have a lot of work to do. Jesse, this has been fantastic. You've done another great service to everyone out there reading through this thing and really thinking about it. Thanks again for coming on the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Take care, everybody.
0: Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Joining me is Samantha Medlock. Samantha is the Senior Counsel for the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis in the U.S. Congress. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks very much, Doug. Great to be with you.
0: Samantha, we're here to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. Jesse Kean and I just took a deep dive on the legislation, but I invited you on to give us that congressional perspective. But first, congratulations to you guys. I know this was a big moment for your committee.
2: It was. Thank you. Yes, there was a lot of excitement at the passage of the bill, delivering on Democrats' commitment to reduce healthcare and energy costs for millions of Americans while making a historic down payment in reducing the deficit. As has been noted, this historic package is the largest ever investment in clean energy and helps ensure that America remains a leader in combating the climate crisis.
0: Okay, so when did you know this bill would pass? For most of us, it was when Senator Manchin said he would support it.
2: Right. Well, we knew when the votes were tallied. You just never know with certainty until then, especially when we knew that the votes may be close, as was the case with this bill. Although legislation will come to the floor, And we've got a pretty good idea of how things are going to unfold. You don't know with certainty until the votes are cast and the votes are tallied. But I can tell you, Doug, it was an exciting moment when we crossed that threshold of having enough votes to know that the bill was going to pass. You could hear the excitement in the House chambers. I think that probably came through the live feed on C-SPAN as well. And there was a lot of jubilation and a sense of accomplishment and a sense of you know, really delivering this for the American people. It was a very long road, but on any bill, no matter how great, especially where we knew that it did not have as much of the bipartisan support that some of the other bills had, you got to wait until every vote is, is tallied and you cross that threshold. That's when you know.
0: Well, from our perspective, out not dealing with the bill itself, there was like layers to the celebration when Senator Manchin said he would support it. There was this big, wow, we, we, this might actually happen. Then when it passed the Senate, and then when it passed the House, and obviously when the president signed it. And so it was like a multi-moment celebration. So it, it was it was great just following all that in the climate space. So again, congratulations on that. Thank you. All right. So Jesse Keenan and I just had this really detailed discussion. He did all the heavy lifting. He read the bill and he talked about how the I and its inflation reduction act addresses adaptation resilience. Now it covers a lot, but there are gaps. So can you talk a little bit about that? Is there legislation in the works to fill these gaps?
2: Sure. We did take a moment, you know, to recognize this historic achievement, but we know that there is more work to do. And before the ink was dry when the president signed the bill, we were already working to address these gaps. My team is tracking. More than 70 bills that have been introduced in the 117th Congress or brought back from the previous Congress that address a range of issues that we know remain as continued work for the Congress on everything from federal planning to building codes and standards for resilience and energy efficiency climate science information and tools, addressing public health, and addressing specific hazards around flood and drought, around wildfire and extreme heat. And so we do know that there are gaps. I think if I were to break it down into three high-priority topics, one would be to ensure that a new national climate adaptation and resilience strategy be devised that addresses the need for planning for transition, for migration from areas of greatest risk, and more. We also need to establish a climate risk information service to coordinate across the federal science enterprise, but also leverage the great capabilities of academia, private sector, and state and local leaders. We need also to deploy sustained and skilled technical assistance to support states, local governments, tribes and territories in their climate adaptation and resilience planning and address the unmet needs that are out there. We know that although we have achieved a lot with the bipartisan infrastructure law, with the Inflation Reduction Act and so much more, a lot of those great solutions and and benefits remain out of reach for too many of the communities that we really want to prioritize to support. So those are big areas of of continued action. There are also among those 70 some odd specific pieces of legislation that have been introduced this Congress, a few that I, I do want to point to and draw the audience's attention to. One is the National Climate Adaptation and Resilience Strategy Act. And the House Representative Peters, California, has introduced that bill. It is bipartisan. It is bicameral. And its goal is to streamline the federal response to climate hazards and direct a whole of government approach to developing a national climate adaptation and resilience strategy, to authorize a chief resilience officer in the White House to direct national resilience efforts, and to authorize interagency adaptation and resilience working groups and include non-federal partners to strengthen that strategic development and communication across all parties. Another bill that I want to draw your audience's attention to is the Community Disaster Resilience Zones Act or CEDARS is how it's being referred to, that Representative Davids of Kansas has introduced. And it advances a national disaster hazard assessment program. It reviews the underlying methodology that we use in the federal government on hazard risk assessment. And it aims to include at a more granular level a better understanding of hazards and risks and to actually rate those risks. So that bill also advances many important recommendations of the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. The last one that I'll mention, and again, this is only three among many, many dozens, is Representative Jayapal's Climate Resilience Workforce Act that also calls for the creation of an Office of Climate Resilience in the White House but really aims at the creation of climate resilience jobs across all sectors and all levels of government. It invests in the development of regional, state, local, and community climate resilience plans. And it aims to remove barriers to employment for climate resilience jobs that are right now really hampering the development of a vibrant climate adaptation and resilience workforce. So again, those are just three bills. We could talk for hours about the broad landscape of legislation that I know will be of interest to your audience. But those are important places that we wanted to draw some attention and that we're thinking about ways to prioritize going forward.
0: Well, one of the things that we talked about is the national adaptation plan. And I know that that legislation's out there. I did an episode on that earlier in the year. And even though it wouldn't be like a funded pot of money, but it would be just so useful having a bit more clarity, a bit more direction. So I'm I'm hopeful something like that's going to pass. And it's, that's encouraging that you say it's bipartisan because I think it's desperately needed. Like you said, there's all these pieces. It'd be nice if there was that kind co- of cohesiveness in that approach. So we'll see. Okay, so it's a complicated bill. And for my listeners, what resources would you recommend for people to understand how they might benefit from the climate and clean energy benefits. I know you there's all these tools I think the executive branch is, is rolling out to help people understand it because that's part of the thing when Jesse talked about it, all these different pieces you're not even quite sure if you're eligible for some of the programs.
2: That's right. So we are seeing the White House and the administration roll out resources in real time. One that I'll draw the audience's attention to is the Clean Energy for All website that the the White House has announced recently. It can be found at cleanenergy.gov. And it, I think, is a very good start in making these really transformational investments more clear, especially for consumers who are thinking about making home weatherization or energy or water efficiency upgrades. I myself am looking at upgrading my electrical panel. So, but there's information about purchasing an electric vehicle or rooftop solar, but other ways that the Inflation Reduction Act can help consumers cover costs and save households money on their energy bills. CleanEnergy.gov is a resource that I think is very useful. I also very much like, if if I could make this small plug for, for rewiring America, but the Inflation Reduction Act Calculator that rewiringamerica.org has stood up is really an outstanding resource. Folks can go to their web browser and search for it or they can go to rewiringamerica.org and I'm sure they'll they'll have it there on their landing page, but it really provides specific information for households to look up by zip code, by their homeowner status and their tax filing status and importantly by their household income the kinds of tax credits and savings that are available to them, including the range of upfront discounts that are available, the different tax credits and incentives that are available. And when those kick in, many of them are available today, for example, on rooftop solar installations, geothermal heating installation, but others will kick in in 2023. So we definitely, I find both of those resources to be very useful, and I think that the White House is going to continue to update and roll out more and more information. I also, lastly, want to draw the audience attention to two resources that Jesse may have mentioned. One is on implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure law. The audience can go to build.gov. That's build.gov. And get information about each of the federal agencies and programs that were included in the bipartisan infrastructure law. There are extensive resources, especially for states and local governments, tribes and territories, and special districts that are eligible applicants for the range of programs and investments and grants that are out there. And then lastly, resilience.climate.gov. This was recently updated. And it builds on the climate resilience toolkit that so many of us are familiar with. But those are all resources that I think can be very useful in helping folks kind of pick their way through all of this work that we've delivered and find ways that they can be benefiting from the climate and clean energy investments that we're making.
0: Okay, that's awesome. We actually didn't talk about those resources. So I'm going to include those links on the show notes for this episode. So thanks for that. It's fantastic. And, you know, I have solar panels on my roof, and I haven't gone for the battery yet. But I'm so I'm hoping maybe there's some options here with this bill that will make more economic sense to actually get a battery. So I, I'm, I'm very interested myself. So that's well, I've
2: got good news for you. Indeed, this does include storage.
0: Oh, Fabulous. Well, I got to go poke around. Samantha, it's been fantastic having you on. I guess my last question for you is what's next? What's next for you and what's next for the committee?
2: Right. Well, it's a busy time. And while adaptation, resilience, and preparedness work continues to come up in legislative work to address the climate crisis, we know that there's a lot of work to get done. Look, the best way to head off the most dire of impacts is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And reach net zero as soon as possible. And we have to compare the investments and transitions necessary to reach our national target to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030 against the accelerating risks and costs if we fall short, including even greater disruption and tragic humanitarian impacts of climate fueled disasters. Members of Congress are hearing from their constituents about the ways that the climate crisis and disasters are affecting them as kitchen table issues, right? From rising insurance costs and declining property values, loss of crops and livestock for our farmers and ranchers, and the weariness of damage, rebuild damage cycle that we have to break. So we've got a ways to go. A big piece of this is going to be implementation. We've got to be prioritizing environmental and climate justice in the implementation of these bills through an all-of-government approach, including the Justice40 initiative that the president has set forth in executive order. We also want to prioritize the increasing employment and development of high quality job opportunities for American workers and improving the equitable access to these jobs for Frontline and environmental justice communities, and for those communities that are undergoing an energy transition. And then, lastly, in the implementation for what's next, we do want to see the administration coordinate closely with adaptation practitioners in states, local governments, tribes, and territories, as well as in private sector partners and non governmental organizations. So, that these critical investments actually achieve what's intended in building sustainable and resilient communities. There's a lot more to be done, but I think it's gonna come down to implementation for us here in the Congress. We have a lot of work to be done in the time that we have left in the 117th. And I'd be delighted to come back and talk with you again at the end of this Congress as we think about what we've achieved and what needs to be prioritized in the next Congress and beyond.
0: Oh, definitely, for sure. Well, Samantha, congratulations. You guys had a great year. Thank you for your service there on the committee and what you guys are doing there. And certainly, we're going to have another discussion about everything that the House has done. But I appreciate everything that you've done. And thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Thanks, Doug. It's always great to be with you. Thank you so much for your work and for the work your audience is leading every day. We know they need strong federal partners, and we're working hard to deliver.
0: Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Jesse Keenan for coming on the podcast and connecting those dots between the Inflation Reduction Act and climate adaptation. Once again, like in that Federal Adaptation Action Plan episode, Jesse has done the heavy lifting force by analyzing what's in the plan and this bill. Jesse mentioned the Washington Post coverage of this issue. Hopefully they'll correct the record in some way. That particular article was pretty one-sided that adaptation was not in the legislation, but it just wasn't the Washington Post. I saw quite a few columns about how the IRA didn't address resilience and adaptation. I hope this episode at least gets people in our sector thinking there are more opportunities in this bill than they realized. I learned a ton from Jesse, and I also had some of these false impressions that there wasn't much resilience in the bill. I haven't covered it much, but I thought Jesse did a fantastic job connecting how climate mitigation and adaptation can complement each other. The IRA offers a unique opportunity to connect resilience to carbon mitigation targets, all the while making communities more resilient to the impacts of climate change. And thanks to Samantha Medlock for coming on the podcast and sharing the view from Congress. They have done some amazing work, and the IRA represents the hard work of a lot of people in Congress and the executive branch. Well done, guys. And I especially enjoyed her update on the National Adaptation Plan Bill. I'm cautiously optimistic that it will happen. And as both Jesse and Samantha explained, it will be incredibly useful as we ramp up our adaptation efforts in the years ahead. I hope to have Samantha and other folks from her team on the committee on the podcast toward the end of the year. There were a ton of resources mentioned in this episode. Definitely check those out in my show notes. Also, a reminder, check the show notes for the Battelle Innovations and Climate Resilience Conference in Columbus, Ohio, March 28th through 30th. I hope to see you there. Submit an abstract. The links are in my show notes. You're going to hear a lot more about this in the coming months about this conference. All right, so what's your climate adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation? You'd be surprised. A lot of people have no clue what resilience and adaptation are in relation to climate change. And are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in the ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. Sponsoring a whole podcast allows you to focus on the work that you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location, I'm going to Mexico soon, to record these sponsored podcasts, which allows a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify the experts that represent the amazing work that you're doing. Some of my partners in this process have been Harvard University, University of Pennsylvania Wharton, Natural Resources Defense Council, and various corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Consider most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. If you work in a foundation, maybe you want to highlight the adaptation resilient work of your foundation or the grantees you're funding. There's no better platform than this podcast to get the word out on adaptation to some of the most influential and active adaptation professionals in the world. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. Folks, I speak a lot. You will enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentation. They are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast. My own extensive experiences doing adaptation. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate you and inspire you. Get more information on my website, americadaps.org. And hey, Adapters, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, I get these all the time. Let me know. It is the highlight of my week when I hear from you guys. You're letting me know what you do. It's really useful information. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, Adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.